Welcome to the Consulting Growth Podcast. I'm Professor Joe Omani, a professor of consulting at Cardiff University and an advisor to consultancies that want to grow. If you'd like to find more out about me and access some free resources to help your consultancy grow, do please visit joeomani.com. That's J-O-E-O-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y.com. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's a real honour and pleasure to have David Blois of M&A Advisory. I've invited David on for many reasons I was explaining to him before. One is my own ignorance, so that when things get to the end of the growth period, when firms do the legal and accounting and culture stuff that is so important to get a good deal, I'm not too sharp on that end. Secondly, it's obviously going to be of interest to many of you that are growing your firms and with a view to sale to get things from the horse's mouth, someone that's been there and done the deal. And thirdly, for my students who often ask me questions about this stuff, and I'm always slightly embarrassed. So, David, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, a real, a real pleasure, Joe. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, could you give us a little bit of background as to how you got to where you are? Yes, certainly. Well, I'm back professionally, professional qualifications. I'm, I'm a certified accountant and I'm also a member of the Chartered Institute of Marketing. I started up going into accounting. They obviously didn't have um, degrees in consulting in those earlier in my day. Learning about business is what I wanted to do. And I felt going in as an accountant was a great way to, to learn about business. And, and I've got the scars to prove it. I joined a business called Reed Elsevier. And I worked with them in a, in a career of about 17 years all over the world in really business and financial positions, financial controller, finance mm-hmm. director, and got involved a little bit with M&A doing deals where those, some of those subsidiaries needed to make an acquisition. So got a little bit of a taste for M&A work. And then right at the end of that, of that period, I was in the, stationed in the head office of Reed in their corporate finance department and did a lot of deals. They acquired an awful lot of companies, particularly in the media space, the event space. Mm -hmm. So did a lot of deals there. So that was my M&A experience to some degree. And and then after that, I wanted to learn about people businesses. I was really keen to join a business that valued people. And there was was that sort of, you might remember in the late 80s, there was a concept of shareholder value. As a concept I didn't really believe in, then when I left Reed, I wanted to find a company that valued people. So I ended up as commercial director of Saatchi & Saatchi, based in Budapest, shortly wow. after the wall came down in uh, wow. 1993. How interesting. Gosh. Which was a, yeah, which was a real baptism of fire in the advertising in the, in the industry, which I'd never worked in before. But it was I really enjoyed it. It was a great industry to work in. So I did that for four years. We actually did a merger of a couple of the, the business units in, in Eastern Europe. And so I had a taste for that industry. And then I went to work for a business that does did M&A in the marketing sector called Results International mm-hmm. and did a lot of deals both internationally and in the UK and stayed there for about 15 years. The founder retired and, and the business started to go off in a slightly different direction. So I decided to start my own firm and we've been in business about 10 years now. So uh, fantastic. every year we've got a niche in the sector, which is sector specific you know the people businesses yep. consulting type businesses but we're size and geography agnostic so we work for all sorts of sizes of business and we work all around the world for, for buyers and sellers mainly sellers. so it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that when it comes to m&a you're talking about we hope to. I mean, we've gone and put, we've called ourselves mnaadvisory.com. So we hoped that yeah. the name on the tin yeah. uh, 
yeah. says it all. Although but, there's but, a coffee shop down the road called, I won't mention their name, but there's something coffee. And their coffee is awful. And I think if you're going to put it in your name, you know, <laughs> you're kind of asking for trouble if you're not doing, you know. Too right. Yeah, too right. <laughs> um, okay. So now I understand the process of growing firms, especially people oriented firms, professional service firms, especially in terms of growing them to maximize EBITDA and get the niche right and all of those things. Now, when it comes to the M&A side of things, I know it's a big question because I know, you know, everyone does very detailed due diligence on what they're going to be looking for. But what are the big boxes that you think need to be ticked when it comes to having a successful M&A from a seller's perspective? Yeah, we have really three main boxes that need to be ticked in terms of a, what is a good deal. And, and it's really important to have a good deal because that, that is an everlasting deal then. The chances are it, there won't be any problems with it and it will be a very successful deal for both the buyer mm. and the seller. But I would say there has to be three elements. And the first of those is chemistry between the parties. When they meet for the first time, they've got to really be able to see eye to eye. They've got to get on and have a similar vision for the future. Um, So that's something that's incredibly important. If that doesn't happen, the chances are when there's stressful situations post deal with clients or or earnouts, then you're going to have, you could have problems. So it's it's really important to have that in place. Okay. The second one is a cultural match. And that's not so much what you describe that is in a geographic culture, but it's what you could describe as the way we do things around Mm. here, the style of working. And that's got to match. I did a deal about six months ago with a business that had a very virtual style and they were acquired by another business that had a similar style. Okay. And there was a fantastic match. It was um, a business, the acquirer was a business called Up Whedon and there was a fantastic match, but it was so important to have that cultural, the way they do things, the way they work. And finally, the third box to be ticked is, is an outstanding business proposition. So when the two parties sit down together and say, oh, what is this going to look like post-deal? Mm. There's got to be something really exciting there. Again, in terms of the up deal, the up, had access, up, the up business had access to the, the wider market, the whole global market, and, and the seller had, was able to produce services for that market, digital services. So there was a, a really exciting business proposition there. They had the clients already in place. It was a good deal. I'm really pleased you said about having out of those three boxes, only one of the three boxes is sort of the detailed finance and what they're doing. And the other two are much softer um, things. And this speaks, so I've interviewed some buyers and they very much emphasise the qualitative measures as much as they, or in fact, even more sometimes than the quantitative measures. Does that vary internationally? Is that a UK thing versus a US thing or is that fairly universal? It's an interesting one. I think it's a fairly unique thing. I think a lot of the danger is, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that, but the danger is people don't consider those things enough in doing deals. And I think people, a lot of buyers will buy a company with some of those things missing and a lot of sellers will listen to get an approach from a buyer and sell their business with some of those things missing. I don't think it's widely known and those rules are often broken deals for the sake of financial engineering or other reasons but I think I feel when we have a client we represent a client we feel that it's really important to have those things in place Mm. those Mm. three boxes I don't think it's particularly in general M&A terms I don't know whether that's always 
always relevant. You'll get some okay. people who apply that practice, but others don't. Yeah, I find it very interesting. I work a lot with my clients around sort of really identifying their unique value proposition, what their culture is, why clients love them. And especially with smaller firms, I think, especially if the founder has come from a big four company, very often they want to adopt that type of branding where they're sort of everything to everyone. I could be wrong, but my view, if you're a smaller firm and you're trying to be everything to everyone, you're going to fail because you're competing then with the PWCs and the Deloitte's and the Accentures. And so having a distinctive brand and culture and values and all the rest of it that reflects the personality of the founders, perhaps, you might alienate some people, but it's really going to attract others to you. Yes, I would totally agree with with that. I mean, in the M&A world as well, I mean, when you're building a business as you have been and helping your clients build their business, you have to have a degree of focus. The more Mm. focused the business is, generally, I mean, you don't want to go to too extreme, but the more focused the business is, the more successful it's going to be. And also, the more you'll have interested buyers in that business. Buyers don't want to buy generalists in in many ways they want to buy a business that has a real niche so yeah i would agree with you if you're going to build a business make sure it's got a niche okay so on this question you've led me into another area of my ignorance on this question if i'm a buyer and i've got a global presence i'm lacking in germany i'm a supply chain consultancy or a marketing firm i'm i'm lacking a presence in germany i want to buy a good firm that matches my values um has good EBITDA growth and all the rest of it in Germany. I ask an intermediary um, to go and find me a suite of firms to look at. The firm I want to buy not only has presences in Germany, it also has presences in other areas that I'm not particularly interested in. Or an alternative situation, it's got services that I'm not particularly interested in. What happens in those situations? Does a buyer say, well, look, listen, I'm just going to buy this bit of the business and you can do what you want with the rest of it? Or do they say, I'll buy the business as a whole and then I'll assimilate or then sell on those other bits of the business? So I guess this is the difference between the core and the periphery in terms of their focus. I think you, I mean, in terms of if we were doing that search for you, first of all, we would try and target exactly what you wanted so that you wouldn't have to do the work. I mean, there might be a shortage on the, of the exact business but generally when we work for people on the buy side we'll find exactly what they want there are things around so i think that's one thing but just going back i always view that buyers and not being disrespectful in any way it's just a term but mm. buyers are fairly simple creatures when they come to buy a business and it goes back to the previous question on focus but buyers are fairly simple creatures and when you bring an opportunity to a buyer it's got to be sort of a fairly focused opportunity that might be of interest to them. Okay. Whereas if it's very much a generalist opportunity, for example, you bring a, a company that does cybersecurity and it also does office cleaning or something yep. like that, yep. it's not going to be, the buyer's not going to be interested in either. Whereas mm. if you take the, the cybersecurity companies to a number of buyers, they might be just interested in that proposition. Okay. So they are not, buyers generally don't like to do a lot of sort of hard work sure. uh, they want to say it's not being disrespectful yeah yeah no it's always it's like all of us none of us over want to, to overcomplicate things yeah they? they don't want to over overcome i mean m&a is is difficult enough as it is mm. without yeah. having to shut down subsidiaries and chop things around yeah uh, they want a, an exact fit which exactly follows from your the way you've developed those businesses to start yeah. with so that's good 
Thank you. That's really useful. And how early on in the firm's growth, because there's so many variables. When a firm's growing, it might accidentally find that it's in the wrong niche. Another opportunity might open up. I spoke to one firm and they got Microsoft for their second client and Microsoft dominated their work for 10 years and it completely changed what they were, what they thought they were going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, how early on in a firm's growth should they start looking at potential buyers and what they can offer those buyers? I'm not a great believer in the fact that they should. I think firms should concentrate on building their business for what that business is, to be okay. focused on something. And it's absolutely right that they pivot all of the time. You know, even huge PLCs have to pivot from time to time. So a smaller business may well find that as time goes by, their opportunities lie slightly elsewhere or slightly to left field of where they're going. I think it's only when you are thinking about a sale, should you start to, and clearly what you can do is, the other thing you can do clearly is when you get your business in shape for a sale, that you're really getting your business match fit for its general life anyway. To get all the things that you might want to get in place ready for a sale actually is really healthy for the business. Things like a second tier, good second tier management team, good systems and procedures, good healthy margins, all of these different things are great if you're going to make a sale. So, um, but I think once you come up for a sale, probably maybe a year or two before sale, it might be worth you thinking about who the buyers are and thinking about any adjustments you have to make for the business. Okay, that's really useful. And would the answer be the same if I said, how early on in the process should they come and talk to you? So would you say it's best to engage with an M&A advisor two years prior to when you think you'll be selling? Yes, I think that's fair enough. Two or three years. Some people might get in touch before and a lot of people we, you know, we're speaking to for five years before they sell. But the nice thing about this, we often have an insight onto the market and we can have a chat to them about how the market's going. And we often have a little chat once a year, giving people a little bit of advice or the benefit of our experience in the market. That works pretty well for both sides and it doesn't cost anybody more than five or 10 minutes of time, which is this is great. We're happy to okay. do that. You that's know. good to know. Well, that's also good to know for some of the listeners of this. Thank you. Yeah, we get great feedback ourselves. We're learning about the industry, what's going on in the industry, and mm. they're learning about what's happening in the M&A market. So it's a good five minutes spent. I guess, actually, you being abreast or you having the visibility of the trends and who's buying and what's changing. I mean, before the podcast started, we had a brief chat about, you know, marketing firms increasingly being bought by consulting firms and sort of this sort of generalization of consulting firms across the board. So I guess that's a real value that you can offer in terms of how the buyer's market is changing. Absolutely. There are all those sort of insights that we can give because markets are changing all of the time. The M&A market is changing. I mean, I've, I've been doing this now probably about 25 years. And when I first started, if you were selling a marketing consultancy, you almost only had to make four calls, four phone calls. And that yeah. was to the big <laughs> marketing groups, the WPPs, the Omnicoms and that sort of thing. But it's the market is fragmented enormously with specialist businesses now so we have to do an awful lot of work just to track the market Mm. so it's an interesting environment those firms you said you worked with for five years or sometimes even more are they firms that come so i get this occasionally i'll get a firm coming to me and saying listen we're bringing in five million we think we're going to sell next year can you give us any advice and i generally say you need to be talking to someone like yourself one of the m a advisories but 
what I always do prior to that is I do a bit of an audit and very often I find the revenue is nice, but everything else isn't. So there is no second tier, there's no succession planning, there's no process procedure, there's no visibility of data, all of that. Is that something that you encounter people coming to you thinking that they're ready to sell? And then actually you've got to do, do you do that bit of advisory as well? So do you say, look, go away and come back or do you help them? We do a little bit of that as a firm. I'm a great believer, as we talked a bit about focus, we focus mainly on the execution because that's difficult enough. And we have to be out there talking to lots and lots of buyers and lots and lots of sellers and all of those things. So we don't do a, a lot of consulting. And But there are people like you that do the consulting and get firms in shape. So sometimes, you know, we feel a firm needs a lot of work. We do a, a sort of maybe two or three years before sale. We call an MO, like a commercial review, which is a bit like an MOT test on, yeah, okay. on, on strategy and where the company is. But, but generally for the, for the heavy lifting consulting, the advice, there are plenty of consultants that prepare businesses for sale. So, yeah, okay. um, yeah, we're happy to leave it to you guys. And okay. <laughs> uh, very often you do a great job when you hear, <laughs> when you hear that, um, a firm has, has employed somebody to work with them to prepare, prepare yep. them for sale. Generally, there's a good outcome. Yep. Okay. And okay, so in that case, I guess the question is, what are the big things? I mean, you've mentioned the three boxes. What are the common weaknesses that you have to work on with a firm in that final year or two where they come to you and they look, they say growth is good, EBITDA is good, revenues are good, we're ready to sell. Yeah. What are the common things you think we say, well, actually, we need to work on this? Yeah, well, I think it's good to look at each company and, and what you can do is say, well, look, what are the, you've got a, a general value for that company. You know that what that company did, does, that you've got the proposition of that company. So yes. if it's a, a cybersecurity consultancy or a marketing consultancy, and outside of that sort of general value, there's going to be really what are premiums and discount factors. So you can kind of do an audit on that business and say, well, here you are in the market. And these are the things that are good about you, the yep. premium factors. And also, there's some discount factors. Yep. Premium factors might be global clients, a long having clients for a, a number of years, good quality clients. And the discount factors might be they don't have a second-tier management team. Their margins are a little bit weak. They don't really have good systems and procedures. So that present where that is. And so to, to enhance the value of that business, you've actually got to start enhancing the premium aspects of the business but also minimizing the discount factors so that's where you start getting to work on saying right we need to create a second tier management team we need to find a way to improve the margins think about ways to improve those margins we need to for some companies for example are not good at they wait for all their business to be referred whereas they don't have an outgoing new business system so all of these things you can recommend and that will enha- enhance the value of the business. Ready okay, start. thank you. Thank you. That's really useful. And I, I wanted to ask um, a couple of specific questions around the deal side. So a student of mine asked me the other day, if you're a business owner, you're doing well, but you've got a, a healthy regard for minimizing your tax, your tax return. Your focus is on minimizing your profits. So you might go to town with a company credit card, not doing anything illegal, just healthy tax avoidance. Sure. Um, but at the same time, if you're approaching sale, you want to be maximizing your margin so that the buyer goes, oh, wow, we're going to pay a good multiple for this. My advice from a rather simplistic perspective is, 
was if you're an ambitious company and you're focused on minimizing your tax impact, then your focus is probably wrong, certainly in the last few years of sale. What's your insight there? What would your advice be? Sure. I mean, in terms of M&A, what we do is adjust the numbers. And it's quite legitimate, adjust a firm's numbers. So if, for example, they had what were exceptional items, I mean, for example, it's quite common, one sort of tax situation is for the founder of a fairly small business to pay himself a very low salary for Mm. maybe, I think it's eight or 9,000 a year, and then draw the rest of his income in dividends because it's more tax effective. and, And also it's for a small business, it's quite cash flow effective, which is quite a good thing to do. So I wouldn't discourage a firm from doing something like that. But when we prepare the company for sale, mm. all we'll do is notionally in the accounts prepare at a market rate for the founder. So if the founder could earn £100,000 a year, we'll say, well, you had 10000 a year through the company, but we need to put in another ninety. And the same can happen in reverse whereby there might be some exceptional items in that business. So, for example, they may have spent a lot of money in maybe moving or they've had quite a big reorganization or they've had to, they've decided to develop some software that develops the IP. And we can add those back and make changes to the numbers quite legitimately. And buyers completely accept that. Um, So I think it's, um, you know, obviously it's important not to do anything illegal for tax because that has (laughs) later on with M&A with warranties and and stuff like that. But general tax advice that's sensible can be adjusted for. Okay, good. Thank you. Are these known as addbacks or adjustments? Yes, they're generally called them addbacks. Yeah, Okay. yeah, that's right. Okay, the other question, in fact, it's more of a question for me, really. And I've had this two or three times where I've had, and I I generally steer away from this because I think it's too complicated, but I've had situations where a network of similar small companies want to join together and then say, we're a bigger company, we're up for sale. And very often these are spread across the globe. And they might, you know, they've been working together before, they might be part of the same association, they might have a referral agreement or a partnership agreement. I guess there's two questions. Number one, can those types of firms sell? And number two, if they can sell, what do they need to watch out for? Yeah, it's unusual to find those groups getting together to sell to sell i think in terms of m&a for a successful partnership of any sort companies have to have skin in the game if there's no skin in the game then it generally doesn't seem to work and i think that's almost the purpose for m&a otherwise people could form joint ventures with everybody but joint ventures when you haven't got skin in the game doesn't always work in in my experience So I think that's the thing. And I think a buyer would all, the thing is you've always got to consider the buyer and the buyer might be cautious of buying a group of companies en masse that have never actually been together as a company before. So I think you'd probably have to do, if you want, you're serious about that, you'd have to do a a sort of a step-by-step integration Mm. yourself and be comfortable and prove, have a track record. And Mm. once you've got the track record, then you might look at uh, selling. Yep. Okay. All right. Thank you. It is interesting because there's more 
I know IR35 is changing this slightly, but there, there are so many independents now. And in fact, IR35 is, is actually pushing some of these people to mould together and form consulting companies so that they're not seen as sole traders who are just contractors, employees in another guise. And so I guess it's something that's happening quite often. But I'm also guessing that buyers do a very thorough job when it comes to their due diligence. So it's not just the, the finances they go through. I presume they interview the founders several times, and I presume they sometimes to employees, do they? Yes. I mean, obviously, there's a, like, they won't talk to employees to start with. Generally, employees aren't interviewed because what you don't want to do when you're selling a business is alert your employees sure. that it's being sold. It should only yep. be a, the close directors because you, don't, you want to make sure the business carries on as normal. And you don't want to scare people, quite frankly. People get all sort, have all sorts of concerns mm. employees if they heard their company was being sold then you know they may think the worst and so it's better not to tell employees until you've got the done the done deal and you can genuinely put a positive not spin but a, tell a positive story yeah. about it okay so what's the process so a buyer comes to you and says i want this um, supply chain consultancy or marketing agency in germany and you go ahead and find one they're in relatively good nick you think they're suitable what are the steps in the process? Yes, well, obviously, there's a lot of research at our end that goes into finding particular companies. And we would interview those. If we're working on the buy side, we would interview those companies ourselves and get a shortlist for our client. And then we, under confidentiality agreement, we'd introduce them to the client and ensure that there was um, good chemistry between the parties. And they would also ensure there was a good cultural fit. And then they would probably have a meeting to discuss there's an outstanding business proposition by the two of them getting together. Yep. So that would be the process. And then you would uh, get offers. If you were buying, you'd make an offer for that business and negotiate it. And if it was accepted, you'd come to a, a heads of terms. So that's sort of a, the, the sort of ceiling of the commercial deal. And then after that, you have a process of due diligence and legal legal so it's a bit like buying a house really you sure. go and have a look around the house you make you find a house that you really like because that's important to go and see 10 houses you don't want to go and just see one yep. so you see a number of houses choose the one you really like make an offer on that house yeah if the offer's accepted it's only then that you call in the surveyor to make sure that you haven't got a hole in the roof yep and, yep. and so that, that's generally the process. Okay, that's a really nice analogy. Thank you. And the final question I had was around the dreaded earnout period. And sometimes it's not dreaded. Sometimes, you know, uh, the founders love doing it. I guess you've seen it go well. You've seen it go wrong. I guess you've seen people minimize their earnout period or some people, you know, ending up with a five-year earnout period. So I guess the question is, well, two questions. One, how do you minimize your earnout period? And two, when things go wrong, why do they go wrong? Sure. I think probably goes back earlier to one of our first questions. They say, what you need to make sure before you go into a deal is you tick those three boxes, chemistry, culture, outstanding business proposition. Because once, if you've got those three, the chances are that you'll get a, get a good deal. So I would sort of recommend to potential sellers of businesses that they get an advisor because it's important that they see a number of potential buyers. They don't want to jump into bed with the first buyer. There are a lot of, I see sort of number of car crashes where 
companies get an approach and the owner of the business is very flattered by that approach and they will often sell to that company and some of those vital ingredients may be missing Mm. and the other factor is of course you have to make sure that the deal it's going to be a reasonable deal that so the earn out is achievable you see an awful lot of some of these deals whereby and that's where an m&a advisor comes in in handy is that you see a lot of deals whereby the the earn out is not achievable you know it's put on really really high targets and if you don't achieve those hard tar- high targets you, you get nothing and that that's a really bad situation so if you've got those three ingredients and the deal is reasonable there's no reason why it won't be a success. And, and you can earn a lot of the money on the earnout because the earnout, you'll get about 50% of the current value in advance, but mm. the earnout is based on the future value of the business. So, for example, if the buyer can bring clients to you and new business opportunities, you could take adva- you'll be able to take advantage of those. And therefore, it might be that you'll earn of the t- although you might own set of you might only earn uh, earn fifty percent of the the current of the current value of the business. When it comes to the total consideration for the deal, you might end up earning about seventy percent of that on the earnout. So okay. it's an attractive thing, and it's important that it works well. I've heard I've I've interviewed two or three people who have left under a cloud when earnouts have gone wrong, and very often it seems to me to be down to personalities almost. Which goes back to the chemistry thing mm. right at the beginning. It's so important. Yeah. yeah, chemistry and culture is really important. And I would agree with your comment about trying to keep the earnout to a minimum. I mean, we would always say to our clients that maybe two two years, three years at the absolute maximum for an earn out and so, you know there are some buyers around that try and put in a five-year earn out and we would resist completely against that so you just have the two or three years yeah. and actually whilst you were talking one more question jumped into my mind uh, sure. so apologies for so in terms of when companies sell a lot of the deals are quite big sort of between the you know 15 to 100 million mark but there are also a lot of deals for smaller firms, sort of, you know, there's a lot of firms that are purchased where revenues are less than five million. Sure. Um, now, the multiple tends to be lower on those types of deals. I mean, at, at least from what I can see. Why is that? It's for a number of reasons, really. They're not that. The interesting thing is they're not much lower. If you're selling maybe a digital consulting firm, you might be looking at making half a million. You might be looking at a multiple of, of could be six times for the right business. And it was making two million, it ended up with seven times. So okay. it's not a huge difference. Mm. And, and that's where, and I think, again, it's important to look at the whole market because there will be people that are willing to pay a good price for these businesses. I think the, the reasons why those bigger businesses go for more is because the chart they're bought by bigger buyers and who have more money to some degree but also that they're sustainable there's more chance of a bigger business lasting longer being more sustainable so that bigger business is likely to have a life of its own in terms of its its internal culture it will have a second tier management team it'll have up and coming stars that can take over as the next generation of management that's why what a buyer is buying it's buying not previous profits but it's buying future profits yeah so yeah. so therefore they will pay a little bit more if that is to some degree guaranteed by having a good a really solid team in place and a good brand in place that's that's recognizable yeah okay um, but the smaller businesses can earn quite good multiples if you find the right buyer because of the synergistic benefits. 
you may find a, a good buyer who would really benefit from the skill sets of smaller companies. So they get a good synergistic benefit. Therefore, they will be able to pay more for yep. that business. So yep. I, I think that's the reasons. And so and that's where it's really important to go and meet a number of buyers for that, for yeah, that okay. reason. Okay, so there's there's a good clear message there, which is meeting as many buyers as possible and preferably talking to an M&A advisor early on is absolutely crucial in getting a good price, um, a good agreement and also a good multiple. Yeah, I think I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. I thought you might. <laughs> good. All right, listen, David, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and help uh, many of the listeners with many different from many different audiences. So thank you kindly. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And if anyone ever wanted to reach out, you know, we're at mnaadvisory.com. Um, My email is davidb at mnaadvisory.com. If anyone's got any further questions, always happy to help. And, and again, just thanks very much for inviting me. And, and thanks for listening to the viewers. Cheers, David. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. All the best. Thank you. As ever, thank you for listening to the Consultancy Growth Podcast. This is Professor Joe Omani at joeomani.com. Mm-hmm.